Welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth. I'm an intimacy coach and psychologist. I created this show to explore the erotic alphabet, to help you learn more about desire and expressing your desires, discover ways to spice up your relationship and create that sizzling relationship you've always wanted. I do this through solid science, real life stories and interviews with an exciting variety of sex experts. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create your ideal sexual life. Make sure you join us to access even more sexual strategies on my blog, A to Z of Sex, access our monthly newsletter with subscriber-only offers at www.atozofsex.com. That's A-T-O-Z-O-F-S-E-X. Welcome to the A to Z of Sex. I'm Dr. Lori Beth, and I am your host. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. Just a reminder, this podcast deals with adult content, so if you don't have total privacy, you might want to put on your headphones. Today, the letter is Q, and Q is for Q&A, and today our Q&A is on sexless relationships. Now, a sexless relationship is defined as a relationship in which sex happens less than six times per year. So if you're in an intimate relationship and you're not having sex more than six times per year, your relationship would be considered sexless. There are a ton of reasons why people stop having sex and intimacy in their relationships. And this is one of the issues that is most disturbing to couples who have long-term commitments to each other. Today, I'm joined by Kate Moyle, who's an accredited psychosexual and relationship therapist and a partner and in-house expert at Pillow App for Couples. Pillow is helping couples to experience more intimacy by providing expert-written, follow-along, audio-guided episodes, which can be played from the comfort of their own home and in their own time. This encourages them to put down the screens that so often get in the way of sex and intimacy and use it in a different and more connecting way. As a love and intimacy education platform, Pillow works with experts and professionals working with couples every day all around the world, taking expertise and knowledge from books, workshops, therapy rooms, and coaches, and making it all accessible to couples. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, can I start by saying how excited we are about having you as one of the upcoming Pillow experts? I am really excited about that as well. And so for the audience to know, my um, episodes are on sexless relationships. So um, let's start with why you feel that's such an important topic. Um, I think it's such an important topic because I think it's so stigmatized and it's so unspoken. So, you know, we have this real confusion around the definition of sex and intimacy I suppose and so many people think that their relationship must be struggling or failing because they aren't having a certain amount of sex you ask people what that certain amount of sex is and they tend to judge it based on what they read in magazines or what they see in the media Mm -hmm. or what their friends say and it kind of operates around this model of what people think they should be doing rather than actually what makes them happy or what they both feel is good. So, you know, even in itself, when we think about that definition of sexless relationships, couples having sex 
six times or less a year, if a couple is having sex six times a year and it's great sex, they both enjoy it and they feel like that's a satisfactory amount. Technically, I don't see why that should be a problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, and, it, and, and in fact, I don't think it is a problem. Couples don't come in and say, I saw a def your definition is six times or less per year. So we're coming in because we're only having sex six times a year, but we're having a great time. Exactly. In that situation, they're like, they don't care. They're not paying attention. It's only those people who really are finding this difficult. Mm, absolutely. And I think, again, it's where people, you know, we know that sex and intimacy are kind of, although they're obviously really connected, they're separate constructs. So you can have intimacy without sex and sex without intimacy. And I think the problem occurs typically when one partner feels that they are missing one or the other and the other partner doesn't feel that way or there is a gap or there is a difference in how they perceive things or how they, you know, what they would both like to get out of that relationship. And, you know, we, there's a lot of anxiety around not having sex for couples and in relationships. There are lots of people who are using it as a measure of how okay things are. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's not the case. You know, that there are also lots of people that have sexless relationships that are very happy in them. Or that, you know, also, I suppose it begs the question, you know, what is the definition of sex? Are we using just uh, a definition of intercourse here, which is traditionally, you know, penis and vagina sex. Um, and that excludes a whole load of couples. And yep. also excludes people, for example, that have had injuries or illnesses, which don't mean that they can necessarily function and have, they have to be creative with their sex lives, but they can also be really satisfying sex lives. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. And when I talk, end up talking about sexless relationships, I'm referring to any kind of sex um, because there are all sorts of sex that aren't penis and vagina sex that are, that are that, that's fun, great, and wonderful. And my God, you wouldn't want to um, label people as having a sexless relationship or having a wonderful time um, where there's no penis present. Yeah, of course. No. So <laughs> it's, um, but I do think people worry about how much sex they're having. Mm. And one of the questions I got asked was, um, about how much sex, how much sex is normal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, so what's normal, right? So in your practice, what would you define as normal? Um, so I get asked this question a lot, um, and the word normal comes up a lot, as I'm sure it does in yours. Um, and quite often I want to know, you know, what people think normal is or where they got that idea of normal from and again it's quite a I suppose an abstract idea people can't really label where they know it came from or that it's a fact it's more that it's a narrative um I know there was a survey done last year in the UK that I think found the average amount that couples have sex in the UK across various ages, stages, um, and places is once a month, which came out as the average, which 
most people are surprised to hear because they think that it would be more. And mm -hmm. I think it's also um, that we put so much pressure on ourselves when it comes to sex that the pressure that we then also put on ourselves can make sex more of a problem or more of a difficulty or more of a, a, a barrier and actually taking away some of that pressure and saying, okay, but what's good for you? If you guys yeah. have really good sex once a month, rather than yeah, not that satisfying sex once a week, why is one of those better than the other just because it's more frequent? Well, I've, what I find interesting also is that, there's, first of all, there's an inherent problem in research that looks at stuff like this because people aren't honest. So that's, that's number one. That's always difficult is that people don't like to talk about their sex lives, even to researchers where it's anonymous. And so a lot of the research that we see is suspect yeah. um, in, in terms of accuracy. So that's one problem. But the other thing is normal is a statistical concept. It's mm -hmm. a measure of central tendency, which means it's a measure of average. So right now, it's normal to have clinical depression at some point in your life. Because in our society, that is an average occurrence. It's a sad occurrence, but it's an average occurrence. Um, and so it's one of those things where when somebody comes to me with this is normal or that's normal, I just, I, you know, I, I don't want, I want them to know that they're talking mathematics, but they're not talking reality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it doesn't take into account you know, the individual. What do you want? What feels good for you? What is specifically going on in your situation? Because it's also like the word should, which is banned in my practice. Yeah. You know, when people say, I think, I feel like this is how it should be. And, you know, I'm like, okay, but I, that might be how you think it should be, but how would you like it to be? Or how do you want it to be? Or what would be good for you and I think it's also important for people to say maybe I am happy without sex you know maybe my relationship has intimacy and it has connection and we have mutual understanding and trust and we have touch but it's not sexual and maybe that's okay for us you know we're not trying to have a child we're not trying to get pregnant and when you look at how many reasons that people have sex for, one of them is you know, procreation or trying to get pregnant. There are hundreds of other reasons that people have sex. And so it's also thinking about, okay, well, what are those reasons for you? Like, yeah. What, what does it offer you? What role does it play in your relationship? And I think quite often when what we see is because of the, the difficulties or anxieties around sex, that kind of has a ripple effect into other forms of physical touch or other forms of intimacy. And that is when we see people who are saying, I feel like there's a problem or I feel unloved or undesired or unappreciated because my partner never wants to touch me or they never want to cuddle me or we never lie in bed together and stroke or play. And those bits are as meaningful as sex in lots of people's relationships or the act of intercourse in lots of people's relationships and that that feeling of being desired or being wanted is a huge huge part of 
I think the loss of the loss that goes with that definition of sexless. Yes. I and mean, I think it's, I think it's really important because I see a lot of um, spread from um, sexual acts, you know, either intercourse or oral sex or, or sex using toys and fingers. When that has diminished or been eliminated for a period of time, mm. often it will spread. Where there's pressure, it will spread. And so then it becomes, we don't hug, we don't kiss, we don't cuddle, as you say. And that that makes things even more difficult. Yeah. Because touch goes completely. And all of us as human beings need touch. Yeah. That's central to our well-being. So that goes completely. Along with that, we also find that, that often um, emotional expressions of intimacy diminish because this becomes the big elephant in the room we can't talk about. And so it, the elephant's growing and getting bigger and we're eliminating more things to try to avoid that elephant. So that's when people say things like our relationship isn't working. Whereas those people who are not having um, sex perhaps um, for um, a physical reason, perhaps for an injury or, or, or a problem, and they might not be able to have regular sex, it's uncomfortable, it's painful, over a period of time, uh, but who are still having lots of um, intimate touch, find it easier and don't necessarily look at the relationship as failing. They, those people come in to see me and say, we'd like to have sex again. They don't say our relationship is, is, I'm afraid our relationship's ending or I'm feeling really distant. Those sorts of expressions aren't happening because they're still having other intimate touch and other emotional intimacy. Yeah. And I think it's also about, you know, how that couple are defining, again, defining sexless in their relationship or defining sex in their relationship. And if it is becoming a problem or not, um, I suppose the term sexless relationships in general is portrayed as a, a negative one. Mm -hmm. And the connotations that kind of go with that, but it's always about understanding for people what's going on for them. You know, what is that individual experience? What is that situation? And also what they can do to change it. You know, most of the people presenting for, for example, therapy, you know, they're there because they want to do something different. They want to change it in some way. You know, obviously the people that don't turn up for therapy are the ones that are either happy with it or they don't think that they can change it. They don't view it as a possibility to change. And I think that's one of the things. So I got asked, can you fix this? And I'm sure you get asked that. Um, and so, yes, this, this can be fixed. In some situations, what it would take to change it would be much, very, very difficult. Yeah. And in other situations, it's actually a lot easier than people expect. But it is something that both you and I work with regularly in terms of helping people to, to figure out what it is that they want in their relationships and what works for them. Mm. And I, I think, you know, something I'm seeing a lot more is, you know, younger couples who are also struggling with this. This isn't just a thing, you know, this isn't just a, a problem that impacts people in long-term relationships or people after they've had children. We're seeing people in their twenties and thirties who are struggling to even just fit sex into their schedules, fit sex into their busy lives, 
um, to make the time and space, I suppose, for sex and intimate, sexual intimate connection. And it's important that people don't just write off relationships for that reason, but they realize that they just need to change something or create a shift or do something differently. And, you know, communication is at the, the core of pretty much everything that we do. But this isn't just, I think it's important to acknowledge that this is not just a, you know, people that have been together for a set number of years and it's just slowly wound down, you know, that kind of standard narrative that we have so often. Um, and that it is something that something can be done about, that we can create a shift. I think that's essential. I think it's very important to point out the fact that this hits all age groups yeah. and that there's a difference between um, a relationship in which people aren't managing to have sex and a relationship in which libido is gone, yeah. which is desire and drive. And they often get all lumped into one category. And so people think that um, if, if you're not managing to connect and have sex, then it must be that somebody's libido is low. In actual fact, it may be, it may not. It may have nothing to do with that. But there's also a narrative that goes along that says that problems with libido only happen to people who are middle-aged and up. When in fact, there's a whole group of, of young people that I've ended up seeing over the last know, five, six years with problems with libido. Um, some of which were physiological and um, the larger chunk of which were of psychological causes. Absolutely. And also that we, we kind of understand that there is desire, which is the want, you know, the want to be sexual, the want to feel sexual, the want to connect sexually with someone so that kind of psychological emotional side of it and arousal which is the physical ability to right. be able to so you know we obviously see the two in combination but sometimes people can feel desire but not become aroused and sometimes yep. people can aroused in situations where they don't feel desire so an example might be someone says oh it was so embarrassing i was at the physio and i got an erection I wasn't turned on. It wasn't because I was attracted to her. And it's basically a response to touch or to stimulation. Yes. Um, and there could be another situation where someone really desires their partner, but equally they have had a, a physical injury or an illness and something that therefore impacts or they're, you know, menopausal and they're struggling to lubricate and they are struggling with the arousal part, not the desire part, and they need a bit of assistance there. So we also see that there's two, you know, equally important but parallel processes going on. Yeah, so in some ways it is, I think, more um, complex than, than many of us are led to believe. Yeah. And sometimes it can actually be a hell of a lot simpler than we've been led to believe. And, and the only way you find that out is if you're willing to have a conversation about it. And usually, um, you know, having a conversation with a professional who's knowledgeable really can take away a lot of the anxiety um, and dread that comes along with this. I certainly, I'm not sure um, how many men you see that are like completely freaked out with episodes of erectile dysfunction. But I've had a lot of that over the years, you know, um, one incident in which um, he was unable to keep his erection or even gain an erection. And that led to a generalization and anxiety about having sex with anyone because this man was 
convinced that that meant that he was not going to be able to have an erection. And what if it did? And then what would that mean? And, and the anxiety was pervasive and it all stemmed from one incident. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the thing that undercuts all of these problems um, and, you know, 70% of men at some point in their life will have some form of erectile dysfunction, whether it's a one-off that never happens again, whether they are, you know, an anxious teenager, whether it's that they have a drop in testosterone or they feel really stressed or um, they've had too much to drink one night. Those things are really common. But the theme that goes through all sexual problems and dysfunctions is shame. Yes. And that we kind of take on that message of there's something wrong with me or I'm not good enough or I'm not a good enough woman or man or partner or husband, wife. Um, and that we kind of shame ourselves so much. And that is a really puts a negative spin on basically then anything to do with sex, which is difficult to break out of, which is where professionals, um, you know, expert advice helps because even the act of just talking about it out loud to someone breaks you know goes against shame like shame is you know sh silence is basically kind of shame's growth mm -hmm. like, <laughs> and it's it's a weapon it's really interesting to me because that is probably one of the um questions i get asked most most often is about dealing with shame in relationship and that um that is at the bottom of so many dysfunctions and sexual problems that people have is this and it's cultural yeah and it's it's but it's i don't it's not universal but it comes close many cultures have a significant amount of shame around sex and sexuality and intimacy and so that makes it even harder to seek help of course because people are so ashamed of having the problem in the first place so it becomes self-perpetuating yeah absolutely um you know it's it's just a general it's a, almost like a general kind of overhead umbrella situation you know that if you so um an example that always used to get used on my training as a psychosexual therapist was that if you watch a child and they touch their toes and you go, oh, you're so clever, you touch your toes or they're playing with their ears or as soon as they put their hands kind of anywhere near the genitals, they go, oh, you go, don't touch that. Yeah. And it's so ingrained that we kind of have this avoidance of sex, sexuality, anything to do with it. You know, we're seeing that this week is cervical cancer prevention week and that one in four women aren't going for their cervical smear tests, which is a huge amount given that this is a cancer that is, you know, almost 100% preventable by, by screening. Um, that women don't want to go because they're embarrassed or they feel ashamed or they're gonna have to, you know, show someone that part of their body and that that is a real health risk. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still, unfortunately, we're still not there's no, nothing in place that combats that shame. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not teaching parent. There isn't, this isn't in the parenting training. Not that there's loads of parenting training to be fair, but this isn't even in the parenting training that there is out there that standard parenting training. Um, we don't teach sexual development 
to parents, child sexual development. And it's a thing that I've, I've done some talking about and, um, and written about a bit because um, so often people uh, find that normal sexual behavior in children, they think it's something abnormal and they attribute it to um, abuse and things like that when it's actually perfectly normal. So for example, masturbation in, in very young children, children discover their um, genitals very early on and they don't know that it's private. So they will touch themselves when and however, because it feels good. And often I'll get cases, referrals, for assessment um, from local authorities where people will say, oh, and, and this three-year-old has sexualized behavior. And the sexualized behavior is the fact that the child's masturbating, which is perfectly normal. So we don't even teach that. Yeah. Those basics. Um, and then we, it goes further and we just don't teach any way of normalizing this from avoidance, as you say, um, or the example you give, you know, touching your toes, great, and touching your genitals, oh my God, don't do that. But also we do head, shoulders, knees, and toes. We label every other body part, but we yeah. don't label the genitals, or we call them different things than mm -hmm. usual names. And we just completely avoid it. And, you know, when we think of that, how that affects us as adults, what it means is as, as adults, we still grow up avoiding the conversation of sex, avoiding the conversation of you know, I feel like there's something wrong with my penis or there's something wrong with my vagina or, um, you know, we would never leave a health problem on a different part of our body for as long as people do with sexual health conditions. True. True. It's frightening, actually. It's yeah. absolutely frightening to me how often you, there are cancers that are far more progressed because um, um, a man didn't go in and, and get his prostate checked or a woman didn't go in and have her normal smear test and, and, and have a gynecological exam. Unfortunately, I also think that we don't actually give doctors the education that we need to in order to make that whole process easier and, and to diminish the shame that's involved. Yeah, of course. And I know you and I have talked um, before we did a podcast together about vaginismus. Yeah. And you know, really sadly, I've had people sitting in my practice who have said the doctor kind of Googled the term vaginismus in front of them. And that's really shaming because if a medical professional is saying, oh, I don't really know how to do with this, or then it might be then a really long period of time before that person plucks up the courage to go and see someone else about it again. Yeah, that's and think really that doctor's fault, but it's not a part of the training. It's not. It's no. And, and, but there's also an attitude thing there as well, which I find fascinating because things like for modesty's sake, we're going to put a drape over you to cover that so that you're modest. You're about to spread my legs and look inside my vaginal canal. And, you know, you're about to, to put your hands in there, but your modesty, you're going to cover everything from view. I mean, to me, that says something about shame rather than modesty, right? Like, it's shameful for me not to want to have that drape there. For me to want to be able to see what you're doing and to understand what you're doing, that's shameful. We have to preserve modesty. How do you preserve modesty when somebody's doing an internal exam? You can't. 
No, it's pretty difficult. <laughs> it's very, but it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre attitude. It's where they think they're doing good and they're protecting your, and I'm putting quotes here because people can't see them. They're protecting your dignity as a woman. But they're actually perpetuating this whole shame-based narrative that goes on underneath this. And it's in these same situations where it's very hard to get a lot of doctors to talk through the actual issues. Mm. And I suppose, you know, if we think about, you know, the, the term that we kind of started the conversation on, like sexless, yeah. that itself is, you know, if we see where do people start with that? So where, so where do people kind of access help if they technically feel that they fit under that umbrella or say someone you know reads an article about sexist relationships and until that point they were absolutely fine about their relationship they felt good about it they felt comfortable about it but they read something and they think okay well we have sex less than six times a year does that mean I have a problem mm. and that kind of starts the wheels turning the likelihood is they might not actually talk to their partner about it first they'll probably start worrying about it or stressing about it or researching or googling and you know in lots of cases it might be actually a conversation with their partner might lead to well I really enjoy the sex we have and when we have it okay we could have it a bit more often so why don't we both make a concerted effort to invest in more time together as a couple and make sure we have a bit more space for intimacy or that we do more things together and that would be as important and making sure that we we connect or that we physically connect and you know that doesn't that feels like the opposite of a shame ridden conversation yes yes it's not really the way that it's going to go for most people because this topic of sex is ironically given in the world we live in where sex is you know on every perfume advert um but still still taboo still kind of mm. so um tell the folks about what you're doing right at the moment and um some more about pillow app please and what they can expect to see and where they can find it yeah so pillow app um as you said earlier, is a love and intimacy education platform so essentially what we have created is an app in which there are a range of audio guided follow along intimacy episodes for couples so we're combining expert advice so people who are working with couples daily people who are therapists teachers you know authors uh, workshop leaders people who have done the training they know what they're talking about they have the knowledge and the experience and we're taking their expertise and combining that with an approach which helps people to be mindful and in the moment together and takes away the pressure um, <coughs> so by the episodes being audio guided what it means is that couples can literally pick an episode, press play, put the phone to one side and give each other their full attention, which means that they're not distracted by, for example, technology, their screens. 
Um, they're fully connecting in the way that so many of us used to. If you think about the start of a relationship, you're gazing into each other's eyes, you're touching, you're playing, nothing else matters. You don't notice if your phone goes off or you just turn it off and throw it on another sofa. Or, and that's because at the start of relationships, we're really investing in that other person. We're giving yeah. them all our time and attention. And that kind of fades as other things creep back in as relationships go on so that we kind of deprioritize our relationships as things like work get in the way or you know our children or our mortgages or thinking about bill payments or, but all of those essential components of intimacy should still be there but we we forget them you know we rush through a day and then we think god i didn't even really talk to my partner today i didn't really even communicate with them and so um the pillow episodes are i suppose easy little reminders for how to integrate those parts of intimacy back into your relationship and in as little as five minutes you know some of our shorter introductory episodes are only five minutes long we know that every couple can find space for five minutes in their week to invest in their relationships to whether it's so some examples of our episodes are showing each other appreciation, complimenting, sensual touch, eye contact, massage. Uh, there's even one for the bath. Um, being playful together, talking, communicating, asking questions, reminiscing. And that's also because we know that different forms of intimacy will feel easier or more difficult for different couples so we've offered a big range so that couples can choose an episode that they think is right for them we're not prescribing you know our ideas of intimacy to them so they have the choice they have the autonomy in that i think one of the things that i like best about it is that it is um the episodes you know range they're not long um it's not difficult they're not um highbrow they're not incredibly difficult for people to understand and so that they can engage in it gives them the opportunity to engage and if for a lot of people that will be all that they need in order to be reconnecting if they need more that'll get flagged up as they're doing it and then they know where they can look for more and that's what's really what i find really wonderful about it is they have that nice balance and, that, and, you know, the whole point is that it's accessible. So it's for all couples. So we don't use gender pronouns in any of the episodes. So if it's a female, female couple that it doesn't say he or him. Right. Um, <coughs> but also that it's on people's phones. They, they can access that from wherever they want, whenever they want. All it requires is a space for them to be as a couple and the speakers which are in their phones and it's affordable you know lots of people don't want to see a therapist they don't want to go and talk to someone as a couple that is too scary and that's completely understandable like I never underestimate how difficult it is for people to kind of reach out and make that first contact and say yes. we think we need to come and see someone and you know, this is also not a product that is just for couples that are having problems. We all need to invest in our relationships. We 
invest in our friendships we invest in our families we call our siblings we check in with our parents and we forget that with the partner who is most kind of present and who's there with us all and the that's time. and to me that's one of the most wonderful things about it it is it, it helps you start a new habit mm. You know, if a couple's doing well, that's great. And it will help them start the habit to actually make sure that the check-in becomes integrated. Um, because as you say, we have, we create habits in all other areas of our lives, but we often forget to create positive habits with our partners. Yeah, all of the, um, we, sorry. Because we, we forget that because they're there all the yes. time, that, that doesn't just mean that they're always going to be there and you know that that's the problem is quite often we we forget that we can take it for granted and you know what we also forget is that couples choose to stay in that relationship every day they choose to stay with their partners every day and it's really important to acknowledge that and remember it and to show appreciation and affection and love and desire and intimacy to each other because it, it's about bonding, ultimately. Yeah. So you can find the links um, in the podcast notes. And, and I encourage you all to download Pillow App and start using it in your relationship. And thank you, Kate, for joining me for this session. Thank you so thanks much, for, as always. My pleasure. So thanks, all of you, for listening to the A to Z of Sex this week. Please write to me with suggestions for the show and any questions that you want answered at drlauribeth at a to z of sex.com. That's D-R-L-O-R-I-B-E-T-H at A-T-O-Z-O-F-S-E-X.com. Do follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and check out my YouTube channel. If you're interested in a free 30-minute discovery session with me, go to H-T-T-P-S colon forward slash forward slash the dash intimacy dash coach.com head over to my contact page and click on my calendar and schedule directly. The link is marked, click here. If you did enjoy the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and Stitcher and join me next week when the letter will be R. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the A to Z of sex. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes and make sure you head over to www.atozofsex.com. That's A-T-O-Z-O-F-S-E-X. To subscribe to my free newsletter to help you keep your sex life sizzling. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes as we work our way through the sexual alphabet to discover the wide world of sex, sexuality, desire, and intimacy. Knowledge gives you the power to create relationships that bring you satisfaction and joy. Hope to see you next week.